Hello to all of you. My name is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. The last time I gave a message was on October the 26th, so today being November the 12th. It seems I'm giving a message only about once a month or twice a month. Right now that's because of other priorities that are taking up a lot of my time, but I do look forward to ministering the Word of God more. And I want you to know that I feel very helpless even being able to share anything. At times there is that feeling. Because I don't prepare anything really. I just go by notes that I've made each day when I do a half hour of meditation on the Word of God. And in this case, it goes back to around November the 1st of this month. And I've just briefly read the various notes I've made, and I wonder how does that all fit together? You see, I do cast lots on the Word of God where there's an equal chance for any particular chapter to come forth. Because I know that God is all-knowing. And his presence and his intelligence and creative powers in that omnipresence is attached to every particle of existence. He does know the end from the beginning of where every little atom and molecule will be. And so I have faith that he can lead me this way in the Word of God. If someone does this as a believer or as a non-believer, and they're not serious about it, and they're not living a holy life, they may be doing divination. So I warn against that. But when one is serious, and they are walking in a holy life, God does lead them in his word in this way. Although one shouldn't depend on this particular methodology of casting wants. But God does use it. It says in Proverbs 16, that the casting of the lot and the whole disposing the robbers of the Lord. And this was used by the nation of Israel, by the early church, and throughout church history in powerful movements such as the Moravian uh, revival. And so I am here to share with you, as the Word of God commands us, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. That's in 1 Peter chapter and so I am here this day just seeking to be prayerful that I might be in a state of worship of conscious worship and speak out of that conscious worship bringing out of that worship heaven through me down out of my mouth in the speaking of the Holy Spirit to rise beyond anything of myself to give you words of life as Christ said the words that I speak our spirit and life. So I want to share with you what the Holy Spirit would be saying. And I want to tell you that as I'm speaking, believe it or not, the Holy Spirit is speaking to me and ministering to me, and I'm seeing things that I've never seen before. And many of the messages as I'm speaking, the Holy Spirit is bringing into my heart by revelation and into my mind things that I've never seen before in the Word of God, just as I am speaking. 
And so I want to share with you whatever God is saying today, and I don't know what he's going to be saying. We have just had uh, the election, and I, like many, thought, oh, how is Trump going to possibly win? It looks like Hillary's going to win. I was so overjoyed that he won the election because of the terrible corruption that if people are watching news that actually tells you the truth, because many of the major news works now don't tell you the truth, and they're hiding up the truth because they themselves are corrupt and hiding up the corruption. But what a joy to know that God is possibly allowing time now, because Donald Trump is in power, for there to be a season of time where we can still reap the harvest before the coming of Christ. Because the time comes when it is dark and no man can work. Christ warns about that in the Word of God. I want to share with you some of the things I received this week first, possibly just skim over that, if the Lord leads in that direction. And then after that, my intention is to share more particularly on Luke chapter 11. And so I will begin with uh, November the 1st when I received Job chapter 1, and I felt led also to read Job chapter 2. And just really meditate on that. And I write a few brief notes. And so I said, Job acknowledged after the loss of all that was dear and precious to him, that the being of God was worthy and ultimately trustworthy because God is the creator and source of all good and must have a creative purpose in what he has allowed. Job's friends really cared for him to sit on the ground with him for seven days and not speak a word. That's something. How many of us today, if we knew one of our friends was going through terrible suffering, maybe from cancer or something else, and given only a few days to live, would be willing to be with them and not say a word to them for seven days, just empathizing without saying a word. And yet even because a person has that much love and empathy for a friend, they may have their own understanding and judgments that can hurt them in the trial. So the enemy gets people to curse God. That's his intention in the trial. And influences us in trials in that way. And so there was some significant verses in Job that I looked at. I just looked at the most significant ones. Job 13, 15 to 16, Job says this. In his trial, he says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. But I will maintain mine own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation or my deliverance. For an hypocrite shall not come before him. Even before Job has a tremendous spiritual breakthrough, which is one of the intentions of God allowing this trial. One of the main intentions, obviously. He already 
knows an unconditional confession in his mouth from his heart of yieldingness to God. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. He is aware that someone that is not genuine in our heart before God, that is trusting in their own ritualism before God to justify their own deceptions of heart, will not stand before God. When we come into the presence of God, if we have the genuine fear of God, we will not tolerate a mere religiosity of somehow thinking that we are accepted by our own sufficiencies of righteousness and performance before God. This was the case with Cain. Cain began to be offended at the consequences of God's holiness in the curse. And so there was a degree of alienation in his heart where now he was a little distant from God in his heart. And he was looking at God more as an enigma. Why would God do this? And so as time went on, he began to form a misconception of who God was or an idolatrous heart and mindset of who God was because of the offense of the consequences that God was allowing around him. When we are offended at the consequences of suffering due to sin in this world, and somehow beginning to perceive God in a wrong way out of that offense, like Cain was, we begin to enter into an idolatrous heart set. We are actually worshiping our own image that we are forming of God, which is idolatrous. And of course, this can lead, as it has throughout history, to the forming of that image in a more clear way by defining what we believe, in then making those beliefs our particular religion or our particular philosophy, and then even forming out of that symbols to focus on, such as idols, and so we see how this degeneration begins to happen into polytheism or idolatry. It happens initially out of being offended at the consequences that God is allowing in our lives personally and that we observe around us in the world is suffering. The Word of God makes it clear that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The word of God makes it clear that God is good. That in God there is no corruption. But when we are offended at what God is allowing in our lives, instead of trusting him, there needs to be a process that's outworked in our lives to deliver us from that heart set 
and perception of God that is distorted and leading in a direction that is idolatrous. And so God allows trials in the hearts of those who in their heart have had a true conversion but still experience things that are difficult to wrestle with like we all do after we are converted. But then there are those that have not even entered into initial genuine conversion in the case of Cain. And so he forms a perception of God as demanding, as dictatorial, and doesn't recognize that God is not someone that he should be afraid of and withdraw from in his heart. This happened to King David when the priest were carrying the ark of God and they put it on a cart when the word of God said they were to carry it on their shoulders they began to perceive God as less than he was which was evident in their decision to do this because it was a the ark was tipping and turning and uh, because of the unstable ground and this was a lack of irreverence, first of all, and it was also a failure to obey what God had commanded. And so God broke forth in the fire of his love, and Uzzah the priest was smitten dead by God. Oh, you can't say that God would do that. God's good. He doesn't do evil. Oh, really? No, he isn't the source of evil. No, he is. Yes, he is totally good. But he has power to take life. He's the one that gave us life. And when he does those choices, he is doing it because he is ultimately good. In fact, the Word of God says his goodness is unsearchable. You see, God is love. That is the very being of who God is. But God's love is a love that is ultimate. It is perfect. There is no corruption in his love. You see, love is always choosing the highest good over any more immediate fulfillment of gratification, which would imply that if there was such choices that were less than the highest good, that there would be corruption in God and he would not be perfect in love. And therefore, he would not be God, for he could not then contain unlimited life and unlimited power without being corrupted by it or without it being dissipated in corruption. In other words, only God, in an ultimate perfection of love, can contain unlimited power in life and hold it in goodness that is ever-expanding and ever-enlarging in greater and greater realms of creativity. And so God's love has integrity. It is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that is contrary to the love of God. His love is so pure 
that it is the ap absolute opposite of corruption. It is the state of being that is anti-corruption. That is why in the nation of Israel, when there was rebellion among the camp and it was expressed in unthankfulness, his fire broke out and devoured those people. And there was many instances. Was God good when he did that? Yes. But King David was afraid of God when Uzziah the, Uzziah, the priest, was smitten dead by God, and he withdrew and put the ark in the house of Obadiban, Ob, Obed, Obadidim, and he went back to his palace. And then he noticed over a period of months, there was it a month, I forgot, that the house of Obadidim was blessed because the ark was there. And he began to realize, oh, God is good. He began to realize the wrong of his perception of God and repented of it and showed that repentance by going back and bringing the ark of God with great dancing that was with reverence. And you can be sure that the priests were totally reverence in all of that liberty that was there expressed by King David dancing before the Lord with all his mice and I'm sure with others worshiping God in a spirit of liberty and dance. And yet in that there was the utter awe of God and this is what is true of those that really know God. There is both things. There is that deep awe of who God is in his holiness which is the integrity of his love that requires judgment. And there is the great delight that God's love is so great that he could forgive us. For when we recognize that God is holy, that his love is that pure, we recognize that he must be good. You see, when you have a right perception of God, you recognize that in the holiness of God is contained wholeness. For where there is no corruption, there is wholeness. And where there is wholeness... There is life. There is beauty that is ultimate and that can ever expand in creativity. There is creativity that can be there, that is totally free, that can ever expand as time goes on into greater and greater realms of enlargement in fulfillment of reciprocative fellowship with God and out of God being expressed and expanding into those things that God allows us to create with our choices and to bring forth in the lives of others that they might enter into the same relationship. But it comes down to this, that we come to that place in our lives Will we truly perceive God for who he is? Those that are born again of the Spirit are those that see God for who he truly is. The Word of God makes it clear in John 3 that those that are... A man cannot see the kingdom of God or perceive the kingdom of God except he be born again or brought forth anew again by the Spirit of God. 
And I have in-depth teaching and all that is involved in this. And this is not the time for me to be to go on and get in-depth into that. What I am sharing here is that Job already knew a deep relationship with God. An unconditional faith in God where he could say, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And his friends truly did love him to be able to identify in such a close way with him in the willingness to be still and silent seven days with him in his suffering. And yet they began to enter into their own ways that tended towards being contrary to the ways of God and their perceptions of why God was allowing this in Job's life and who God is in relation to Job and in relation to themselves. And so as we get towards the end of Job, we see that the Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind. It says there in Job 38, 1-3, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Through the trial, Job darkened counsel by words without knowledge. He could not understand fully why God was allowing all of these terrible things to happen to him when he lived and was living even in the trial with integrity that he would not curse God. Such a righteous life. Now let us remember that the whole issue that Satan had with God allowing Satan to try Job was whether he feared God or not. And Satan basically says, we'll see if he fears you after I do this to them. And now if you touch his flesh, even that's worse. Now we'll see if he fears. The temptation being to experience a misperception of God out of the trial, a bitterness that births a misperception of God and would cause one to go in rebellion against God. Many of you don't realize that there are many clay tablet writings from way back to the first city before the flood, Urudu. You can look up uh, a well-renowned archaeologist whose name I will try to bring to mind right now, um, since it's been a while, it's just slipping my name. David, I think it's David Rowell. Uh, um, but anyhow, that's probably his name. But this archaeologist points out that from the writings of Josephus, Josephus, that it speaks about Nimrod, that Nimrod apparently said, because God caused the flood, I will take vengeance on God. 
He was totally in rebellion against God, and he was used to form the whole world system and society at that time with belief systems that were in total rebellion against God. And again, I could go into a lot of depth and how um, from that first city of Rudu, a lot of the clay tablet writings uh, that they found show, and David Rowell talks about this, even that there's very good evidence that before the flood, Cain formed a city that was completely idolatrous. It had an idolatrous view of God and that was idolatrous. And that the city after the flood of Rudu, they knew was the same city because even after the devastation of the flood, they probably could still mark geographical locations of where the ark landed and so on and knew where that city was. And so they rebuilt it. And Nimrod comes along and rebuilds that city. And of course, the city, uh, then from there, it's the uh, city of Ur. And that city had walls that were 70 feet high, 80 feet wide that went for miles and glowed in the sun with a metallic uh, finish. They were very highly sophisticated civilization. And that's what the remains show. But in these remains, you have the moon god, religion, which is a totally idolatrous religion, but it comes out of this root misperception of God as being a demanding dictator that requires performance to be accepted before God. I believe they also even sacrificed women back then that were virgins or something. These practices still go on in parts of the world, um, I believe today, or in the recent past, if not. But this moon god religion was the religion that was there when Abraham was there, and he came out of that idolatry. And of course, it spread to Babylon, the moon god religion, basically, and then from there to the Arabians, and then they had their, how many gods it was around that rock that they called Mecca today? But the top god was the moon god. It was called the god, meaning Allah. The God referring to the top God, which was the moon God. Of course, Mohammed renounces all these gods, including the moon God, but he still goes around the rock, still does the same thing, so you still have the same deception. So that all came out of Cain. And so, also, even after we are born again, God is wanting to purify us from the tendencies to go in that direction of our own ways, of our own understanding. And so Job's friends began to have their own misconceptions out of the seriousness of this trial of who God was to Job and to them. And God's answer to Job is, you're darkening wisdom applied by words that are without knowledge, without knowing without knowing who I am. So God says, I'm going, I'm, I want you to stand attention here because I'm going to demand of you and I want an answer from you. And so we go on to Job 41 to 5. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? So there is a tendency in Job to feel like he should, you know, say, God, you know, 
surely you're 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 going you're going to be this way. He that reproveth God, let him answer it. Are you reproving God and telling God what you think he should be in the trial? If you're doing that, you better have an answer before God for why you're doing that. He that reproveth God, let him answer it. And so, Job answers, and then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. He has recognized that in the pressure of the trial, the things that he was uttering, out of the stress of the trial, of trying to grasp with his mind why God was allowing this and beginning in measure to form his own misconceptions of why God was allowing this and of who God was to him was totally like reproving God and a terrible thing to do. When Christ was on the cross, he never ceased to be God. He maintained an unconditional faith. In the sense, it is the same verse and utterance that Job said, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Christ did not utter his own conceptions and ways that God should be out of the trial, like Job did. He said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was the pressure of having to go through something that was in the why. But in the why, there was not rebellion. He maintained a perfect union in the Father. He said, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He never lost faith in God and held a fist or rebelled bitterness towards God. He is God in the flesh. And he never ceased to be God in the flesh. He was always in union by faith in the Father while he was experiencing the forsaking judgments of God upon him for our sins. He always was in union with the Father. He was in a state where his faith was like us open hand of surrender and trust, not a fist of rebellion. Like, totally pure. His spirit was totally, his soul was totally pure before God, even in uttering that why, which was a why, why, why. Have I had to experience being forsaken of your presence, and yet here he is in total union, despite feeling the presence of God in total union by faith. His spirit, his soul was in total oneness with God. In conformity with God, because he is God, he never ceased to be God on the cross. He conquered death in the flesh as God manifest in the flesh. And yet was fully 
in a human body experiencing temptation like us. But because he is God, he was in perfection without sin to the very absorption of death and swallowing it up in victory through faith. The Word of God says this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. It also says there that whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Christ prayed for Peter that though Satan would sift him as wheat, that his faith would not fail, that he would continue to trust God. Now, Job continued to trust God, but he had an area there in his understanding of the heart that need to be sanctified and of the mind. To come into form, conformity to an unconditional union of his full soul in conformity to the image of who God is. In his holiness, out of which springs his goodness ultimately expressed in the fact that God himself suffered more than you, a mere creature, in his Son, which is the full expression of himself into the time and space realm, suffered more than you, a mere creature, and humbled himself more than you, a mere creature, and as it were, took the first man, Adam, and through his obedience, of resisting temptation to the very death on the cross, took that first man, Adam, in whom you and I existed in the whole human race, and nailed him to death on the cross so that we could be transplanted into him, the second Adam. So I want to share with you here in this passage that we also need to see in the light of God's holiness that we are vile. And what shall we answer God? Like Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Woe is me, woe is me, for I have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then when, the, when he said this, like Job, the Lord took the tongs from the altar and purged him of the corruption and of the uncleanness was in, that was in him, that he did not have the strength to do in himself. And then the Lord sends him and uses him. And God is wanting us to be sent. But before he can send us, he needs to do that work of grace in our lives. where we enter in to the place of humility and the fear of God, where our fear of God is so purified. Our, what is the fear of God? It is the choice to recognize God for who he truly is in his being that contains unlimited power in life without end. To recognize that God is ultimately trustworthy because of having a quality of being that could be the only quality of being that could possibly be ultimately trustworthy. And that is a quality of being that will not tolerate corruption, that is totally an integrity of love or a purity of love that is the holiness of God. 
that contains ultimate wholeness, ultimate goodness, ultimate beauty, that causes us to be so attracted to God that like King David we say, one thing have I desired of the Lord and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire of it in his temple. It is, we are to worship God in what? The beauty that comes out of perceiving his holiness, that is revealed to us, the beauty of who God is, that is revealed to us out of rightly reciprocating the holiness of God in the midst of trials, recognizing God is ultimately creative and holds all things in his hands. There are many terrible tragedies to happen that happen also to the righteous. In fact, the word of God says many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivered them from them all. From them all. It didn't look like Job was being delivered when he lost everything. But the latter end of Job was far greater than the time when he had everything. And so we go on in this passage. And in Job 42, 1 to 6, the Lord says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not, here I beseech thee, and I will speak. This is Job saying to the Lord, Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, Lord, and declare unto me. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye, and he's talking about not just his physical eye, he's talking about the eye of his heart perceives you, perceives you aright. And when I see who you really are, God, as I do now, as you're revealing yourself to me in this trial, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. It says in the last days, in Daniel, when the Antichrist comes upon the earth, that there will be those in Jerusalem that are very godly people, they will instruct many in the ways of the Lord and in the understanding of the Lord. And yet it says that they will be purified and made white through trials. As they are being tested and tried by the great deceptions that are taking place. When people are trying to convince them that the Antichrist is God manifest in the flesh. But God here says... Or Job here says, I am demanding of you, God, to declare unto me, because I once heard of you, but now I am perceiving the reality of who you are. And when I see who you are, and I realize my reactions in this trial, I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. We have our first perception of who God is 
when we are born again of the Spirit of God or brought forth anew by the Spirit of God. How does that happen? It happens when our soul, which is like that fist of rebellion because of the things that have happened in our lives, finally recognizes the utter corruption and undoneness of ourselves in the light of who God really is in his holiness. And we begin to realize that God is so good that he humbled himself more than us a mere creature, suffered more than us a mere creature, so that we could receive his forgiveness. And when we see that, when we see how undone we are, how empty we are without God, because we were created to only find fulfillment in the presence of God abiding in our inner being with rivers of living water, and we see how empty our life has been because we've been grasping after those things that cause corruption, that causes emptiness, that causes an emptiness that just is terrible in its feeling, but it can drive us to the place where we finally realize our true life source is in the Creator. And we cry out and we say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Forgive me. For cleanse, cleanse me of my sins. Come into my life. That fist is like a seed that breaks open. The hard shell of that seed breaks open. And that hand now is a hand that symbolizes selfless trust and surrender to reciprocate who God is and his goodness to us. And the Spirit of God comes like another hand against that open hand of surrender, another open hand, so that our hand can no longer close. And because the Spirit of God is dwelling in our soul, that is now in a state like that open hand, and so now we have a new divine nature, which is described when it says, whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Our faith is that new divine nature. It is a state of trust in God that is held in that state by the indwelling of the Spirit of God with our spirit and soul. But it is an ongoing process of transformation. For in the same way we receive Jesus Christ, we learn to abide in him through every trial and come through the other end into a closer and a greater relationship with him. So Job is saying, I am ready to hear from you, Lord, because now I've seen you, who you really are. And so we go to Job 42. 8 to 10. Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams. This is what God is saying to the people that were comforting Job and thought that they had the answers and the reasons for why Job was going through these trials and were wrongly accusing him, though they loved him and cared for him very much. Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for him will I accept. 
lest I deal with you after your folly, in that ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, like my servant Job. So Alphaz the Tem Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Nahamathite went, and did according as the Lord commanded them. The Lord also accepted Job. So while they were offering the offering, Job was probably also offering a bullock with them. And they were offering it, recognizing that they were wrong in their judgments towards Job. And they were recognizing it not only before God, but before Job. But there is Job offering up his bullock as well. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. So Job prays for them. He says, Lord, they hurt me so deeply by saying the reason you were allowing all, the, all of these things were happening to me was because there was sin in my life. God, they hurt me deeply, but now I pray for them and they're here before me and I just say, Lord, please forgive them. I receive them as you received me, a sinner. And so... Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. What a wonderful thing to recognize. God has a reason for why he allows trials in our lives. Oh, I know some people think that it's because Job had a fear of losing his losing things and that's why God took them all away from them. I'm sorry if you're going to use that as an excuse so that God doesn't allow trials in your lives and think that as a child of God that you're so perfect that you don't need to be chastened by the Lord. You are deceiving yourself by that verse. Job was fearing for them because he wanted them to have a right relationship with God. He could have had fear over losing things. That's all conjecture, though. That wasn't. That had nothing to do with why God was allowing the trials in Job's life. He was allowing the trials because he was wanting to bring Job into a far closer relationship with him. And maybe part of the reason why Job didn't have a close relationship with him was because he feared that his children would totally turn against God and therefore the judgment with God would come upon them and maybe also that he would lose things. That could be. But that's all conjecture. God's purpose in allowing trials is to purify those things that we do not recognize in our own lives. Now, I was mentioning that I wanted to preach from Luke chapter 11. Obviously, after preaching for almost an hour, I won't be able to go in maybe the depth I would, but I do want to go through uh, some of the notes I made in Luke chapter 11 and turn to that particular passage of scripture. And so I'm just going to turn to Luke chapter 11 here as soon as I open up my um, Bible here. And we will go to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And I'm just going to take this in sections. 
I don't know if this relates, but it probably does. I do know that the last part of this passage does relate, though, when I look at this passage now. But let us just, I will begin, though, at the first 13 verses here and just begin talking about them. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive every one that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine is in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him, because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as many as he needed. And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Now in this section here, I see how this totally fits in with what we have just been sharing. First of all, the first thing that one does in prayer is to hallow the name of the Father. Hallowed be thy name. What does it mean? The name, if you look it up in the vines, is the word name is very similar to the word soul, except soul has the meaning of who you really are in yourself and to yourself. But the word name has who you really are as expressed towards others. And so God is saying here that we are to hallow or to separate the, the being of who he is in his holiness. We are to be in utter reverence and awe before God when we come before him in prayer. This is the genuine fear of God. It is the genuine fear of God there was the issue in the trial of Job. Satan was saying, if Job really fears you, surely 
you'll find out if he really fears you through the trial. Well, Job came through the trial and having those things purified in his life, but he came through the trial victoriously. There are times when we don't come through trials victoriously. All this dross comes to the surface. As the Word of God says, the trial is like fire. And when that dross comes to the surface, the enemy starts accusing us and saying we're the dross. And he wants us to begin to believe that. And if we start buying into his lie, buying into the lies of the accuser of the brethren, because all these negative things came out and maybe we did curse, maybe we did things that were wrong. I know I failed in trials before God. But I immediately repented because I had the fear of God within me and I was shocked that I actually failed God in the trial and started cursing because there was so much rebellion I didn't know that was in me. I was saying, God, I've been seeking you all my life from 12 years old and an hour and a half of prayer and doing all these things and you let this happen in my life and I became angry. Though I didn't use the very name of God, I swore and, you know, I'm still amazed that God's forgiven me. I don't even want to share what happened with me. I, I feel like I'm one of the most unworthy to receive the mercy of God. And this is after I was born again of the Spirit. I don't even want to share. I have asked God to have mercy upon me, and I know He has, and I know He's forgiven me. I'm sure I've suffered consequences, but in the trial, I actually became angry, and He said, I'll never serve you, and I repeated it over and over again out of anger and bitterness towards God. I'll never serve you. I'll never serve you. And then I thought, oh, how terrible. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And I repented very quickly after that. But, oh, I had, I can say, brothers and sisters, I count it such a privilege to be able to serve God because I know how unworthy I am to have the privilege to serve him because of the rebellion that was in my heart. And the enemy would accuse you, brothers and sisters, and he would say, Oh, you're that. But God is there ready when you repent, if you truly repent, to forgive you and to cleanse you so that that dross is skimmed off the surface. And like me, I needed a revelation in 1975 where I had an open vision and God had to show me my open vision that I was his son because I just was so weak in that area. So it's so important for us to learn to hallow the name of God in prayer and in reverence so that there is not our own ways and misperceptions of God in our prayers and in all that we do. And in this passage, the other thing that stands out is that God emphasizes that he is good and it's our tendency to become like Cain and think that we have to perform before God and become religious, that God is some kind of dictator and we lose sight of the goodness of God. But in this passage, the Lord makes it clear that he's good. And that if anyone asks of the Father, he's not going to give them what isn't good. And what God was trying to show Job in this trial, what does he demand? What does he say to Job after this trial? 
He says to Job, Okay, I'm going to demand of you. And he also says other things. And then what does he begin to say? He shows Job how, how, he's the, how his power is so creative. Because he's wanting Job to recognize the greatness and the awesomeness of, his, of what he's created and does create. So that he will recognize that God is creative in whatever he allows in our lives. Even if it's a tragedy like Job, he is creative. He is creative in goodness. And we can believe that he is good. We can still maintain the genuine fear of God that recognizes God is ultimately trustworthy because of the quality of his being. Because there is only one quality that can be ultimately trustworthy, and that is a quality of being that will not tolerate corruption and requires judgment upon corruption. And out of that foundation that is totally anti-corruption can spring forth in creativity that is ultimately manifested in a goodness that would only be possible in God himself becoming a perfect atoning sacrifice because only God could be ultimately good to be a perfect sacrifice that could absorb sin and death so that we could receive forgiveness of sins. And so in this passage of scripture in Luke 11, God is showing again that we can ask of him, believing that he is good, and when we really believe that he is good, like this friend did, we won't just ask half-heartedly. When we really see that God is good, we ask wholeheartedly. So that we ask and we keep on asking. And that's what that word means in the Greek there. With importunity, it means to ask and to keep on asking. And to knock and to keep on knocking. Because we're perceiving that God is good. Because he is holy. And that in our need, he will meet that need in his way, in his time. And that what he is allowing in the present time, though it be a trial, is an outworking of the goodness of God in our lives. We go on in this passage of Luke chapter 11. And we take the next section, 14 to 26. Luke 14 to 26. And he was casting out a devil, and it was dumb, and it came to pass when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake. Now, I just want to make sure I got the right chapter here. One sec. Yes, I do. And the people wondered, but some of them said he casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils, and others tempting him sought of him a sign from heaven, but he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out devils through Beelzebub. And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore shall they be your judges. But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God is come upon you. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him, 
and overcome him. He taketh from him all his armor where any trusted and divideth his spoils. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and finding none. He saith, I will return unto my house whence I came out. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Now what I said in brief notes on this passage is, it is important to recognize that God that is within us is greater than the demons. When we are fully living for and unto Elohim, the Almighty's One as our full and only focus, and as our Lord and Savior. Then we have authority over demons to keep them from entering our life, and doing damage, and authority to cast them out of others. The confidence of God's authority in us is there when the one that is dwelling within us is greater than he that is in the world. And so the enemy cannot disarm us. He cannot put us to sleep so that we are asleep and he can come in as a thief and rob us. We are those that are of the day. We are those that are commanded to watch and be sober, to be awake, to be in the light, to not be abiding in the things that desensitize and put us into a spiritual sleep, which are the loves of the world. The sin of Sodom was pride, abundance of bread and idleness, and it is much the case today. Materialism, the gods of amusement and of pleasure. People spend hours watching sports. These things are based in the root of pride. They are not of God. And yet the church embraces these things. But God is calling us as his people not to condone the things that rob us. Am I saying that I'm making a rule that you can't watch sports? No, I dare not do any such thing. There is no performance that is pleasing to God. It must be that it is in our hearts to have such a relationship with him that these things are seen for what they are and the emptiness they are that are robbing us. It is these things that desensitize us, that cause hardness of heart, resulting in divorce and marriages, resulting in denominations and divisions. It's the hardness of our hearts. And we need to have the fear of God and enter into it so that we repent of these things the gods of pleasure and of amusement, of idleness, of pride, of abundance of bread. Then the Lord can dwell with might in our inner being because we will not allow our time and our intimacy with God to be robbed by the busyness of the world. The world withdraws into the busyness of material pursuit. I right now am in a trying position financially. And I could easily have spent 
ignored my times in prayer, but throughout my life I have not. And I've sacked, and that's the only reason I would have made money a long time ago. But I count it a privilege to be in this position, knowing that God has his timing. Now, when we have that authority in our lives, it is because we've had a revelation like Job of who God is through the trials. Now, I want to go to the last passage because there's really a lot in this last section, I believe, from uh, 29 to 36, there is this verse in between, 27 to 28, I'll read that too. And it came to pass as he spake these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, Blessed is the womb that bare thee, and the paps which thou hast sucked. But he said, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. That is who God is blessed with. Those that have the perception of hearing his word and keeping it. And when the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. They seek a sign, and there shall no sign be given it but the sign of Jonas the prophet. For as Jonas was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South shall rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and shall condemn them. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in judgment with this generation, and shall condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, putteth it in a secret place, neither under a bushel, but on a candlestick that they which come in may see the light. The light of the body is the eye, therefore when the eye is single, thy whole body is full of light. But when thine eye is evil, thy body also is full of darkness. Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. If thy whole body therefore be full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light, as when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. <clears throat> so I just want to share the notes on this particular passage. God will judge those that refuse the truth by those in other places in previous generations that responded positively positively to the truth, when given the same opportunity to receive the light of life. Our lives have an ultimate destiny and purpose for which we were created, just like a candlestick was created to give light. We should therefore be on guard that the eye which represents our heart does not become opaque and hardness but receptive to the reality and truth or light of who God is to us. Then everything in our life will be filled with his light so that we are directed in everything into God's ultimate meaning and purpose in our lives. That is what God is saying. How are we responding 
in the circumstances we find ourselves in to God. How are we responding also to what we have already heard and know of God through his word and through what God has given to us? It says in 1 Peter that God has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. And then it goes on to say, therefore add on to your faith. And I could go to the passage and read it. Maybe I should quickly, as it is short. So I'll go quickly to 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'm going to go there right now chapter 1 and we read in this passage of scripture just going to where it would be and it could be second Peter if it is that's not a problem we'll just go there it is second Peter chapter 1 and we read this in relation to this passage of scripture First of all, I mentioned that his divine power is given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding and great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And then he says this, and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. And this is the key. It is in the way we receive Jesus Christ that we had a genuine conversion to Christ. It says in Colossians, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. And God is calling us, it's his people, to be in that relationship with Christ. And in this passage of scripture here, we are called to be those that have such a heart before God that we respond to the light of life. His word is light and his word comes forth and brings forth life. The being of God is, as it were, illustrated in nature by an ultimate negative and positive. The negative symbol represents a horizontal line representing cutting off and foundation. It is the integrity of the love of God. The positive symbol come, is formed out of that symbol of the negative, representing a plus symbol or the symbol of the cross. And when those two things happen in our heart, and we recognize and we are reciprocated to the holiness of God in the midst of our trials. We recognize the goodness of God. We trust him through the trial. And we embrace the cross of Christ. We are dead to the world. Because we are identifying fully in being crucified with Christ and risen with Christ. And then there's the breaking of the hardness in our hearts 
that is holding us back from that close intimate relationship with God because we are truly recognizing God in that ultimate negative and positive of first his truth and then his grace, of first his holiness and then his mercy. As it's explained in the Old Testament, the Old Testament word mercy includes the understanding of grace. And that's what God is calling us as his people, is to enter our destiny, to be who God has called us to be. He's called us to shine like a candlestick. That is our purpose. And we are to enter into it, not hide it in a secret place. Not bury our talent in the ground out of fear for losing self, but know that we can trust God and put our lives on the altar. That we are weak in ourselves and cannot put our lives on the altar out of sufficiency in ourselves, but out of learning to put our sufficiency in God. Thanks be unto God that causes us to triumph in all things. Because we are the circumcision which worship God in spirit and truth. We've experienced the breaking of our heart, the circumcision of our heart with that two-edged sword of the holiness of God and the mercy of God that has broken up the fall of ground of hardness because we've come in reverence before God. We've learned to be still in the trial instead of uttering our own presumptions. And that is the same way we should be entering into prayer. It says in Ezekiel 5, that God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore do not be presumptuous to utter anything before God, but let your words be few. Let us learn to curb back our own tendencies of self-initiation, of presumptuous words, of presumptuous choices. King David said, Lord, deliver me from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be innocent from the great transgression, which would be ultimate rebellion against God. Like Cain had, and like others, that had turned away from God. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. Why? Because he trusts in the goodness of God and his mercy to forgive him, and refuses to buy into the accuser of the brethren that would try to break down the strength of his inner man of Christ dwelling in him, break that down so that he doesn't have authority to take dominion over the demonic that would seek to attach to his life. Let us learn to deliver ourselves from every demonic attachment and influence and rise up with the power of God to cast demons out of others by preaching to them the truth of God's love by encouraging them and pointing them to have their faith strong and know that authority in their inner man of Christ. Let us be those that choose to recognize God for who he truly is to us and to this world, which is the choice to genuinely fear God. Thank you for listening to this message. And I look forward to having the privilege to serving Christ more and washing your feet. And may we wash one another's feet in humility like Job did to his friends who hurt him so deeply. Oh, and yet those friends loved him so much, yet not, a, not the love that God wanted. But may we have that love and be baptized in that love for one another 
May we come forth and become the corporate bride of Christ and repent of denominationalism. Repent of not allowing the fullness of the headship of Christ to inhabit our local assemblies. Let us let God bring more abundant honor unto the part that lacks, that tends to be despised in our midst and looked down upon in the natural that no flesh should glory in his presence, that there would not be pride, that there would not be division, that our identity would be in Jesus. He wants to bring forth his bride, and I'm writing a book that is a template to allow the fullness of the headship of Christ to inhabit his body, to allow denominations to repent of being denominational and to come out of their denominationalism, that we may conquer our nation and our nations for the kingdom of God. In these last days, this is the strategy that will conquer the nations and reap in the harvest before the coming of Christ. It is the bringing forth of the fear of God and out of that the bride of Jesus Christ around the world. And I pray that God will use the booklet I am writing to do that. Thank you for listening to this message.